evidence and answers. As a young man, Abdu Murray was a zealous defender and evangelist for his Islamic faith. However, he came to find the truth in Jesus. How was he convinced about Jesus? And what led him to leave Islam and follow Jesus? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In this episode of Evidence and Answers, Pat will be speaking with former Muslim Abdu Murray as he shares his powerful story of leaving the bondage of Islam and finding freedom in Christ. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges Christians face today. How do we reach our Muslim friends and family members for Christ? Well, to help us today is scholar Abdu Murray. Abdu Murray is the North American director with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and is the author of several books. Abdu holds a Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology from the University of Michigan and earned his Juris Doctorate from the University of Michigan Law School. He serves as the Scholar-in-Residence of Christian Thought and Apologetics at the Josh McDowell Institute of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. So, Abdu, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Oh, thanks, Pat, for having me on again. It's uh, always a pleasure. Yes, and Abdu, you know, you come from a Muslim background and you came uh, to Christ. So tell us a little bit about your background growing up as a Muslim. Sure, yeah. I was I was born in the States, but I was uh, raised as a proud Shiite Muslim. Uh, the, the real way to say it is actually Shia, but most people say it Shiite. There are the two main sects within Islam. There are the Sunnis, which is the majority, then there's the, uh, the Shia, which is a minority. And most of the differences are actually quite just political as opposed to theological. There's some slight differences between the two, but for the most part, they're the same. I grew up in an area of uh, outside of Detroit. There's actually a very large Muslim population in Detroit. And the part where I was born had quite a bit of Muslims, but then I ended up moving out to a suburb of Detroit when I was a kid. And largely, it wasn't very diverse. Now it's extremely diverse. There's lots of Indians and Pakistanis and Iraqis and uh, Arabs who live there. When I was growing up, we were sort of exotic. You know, we were, as I always put it, we were the, the dash of olive oil in the sea of rice, as it were, <laughs> in the area around me. So we were like, you know, sort of exotic. People wanted to know about Islam uh, occasionally when I would talk to them. And it gave me a great opportunity to share why I thought Islam was true and worth believing. And from a young age, I was really taught to be very proud of being a Muslim, to uh, try to explain it whenever, whenever anybody would ask me about it. And I would engage in conversations with people quite often about matters of spiritual reality. And um, you know, I was a red-blooded American teenager. I liked sports and everything else like the, like the next guy. But at some point, my discussions would eventually turn to you know, about transcendent truths because I thought those mattered the most. So I was uh, talking to a lot of people now. I was sort of an equal opportunity faith knocker outer of her. It wasn't just uh, uh, Christians I was going after. It was uh, if there was a Hindu or a Jew or a Buddhist or an atheist in my midst, I would eventually talk to them too about why I thought Islam was true. But Christians were sort of low-hanging fruit, you know. They were always around. And what was interesting was that people back then especially, this is, we're talking 80s and 90s, they would still bear the name Christian, even if it didn't mean much to them. Now it's not that the way that way anymore. People don't say they're a Christian if they don't really believe it. They sort of given up the pretense. But back then, 
they would say it all the time. So I would actually ask them a question. And I would say, why are you a Christian? And oftentimes they would basically say tradition. They, you know, they would say, I don't know, I, I go to the Catholic Church or the, I go to the Presbyterian Church or I go to the Lutheran Church on Christmas and Easter, so I guess that makes me a Christian. And they would answer almost in the form of a question. So I was like, do you even know why you're a Christian? And the answer was usually no. So I would then begin to poke holes in their faith. I'd say, you haven't thought this through. You're telling me tradition is what saves you. And that's how I would begin my conversation. Somewhere in the, in the beginning of the conversation, I would basically say that tradition isn't a good enough reason to believe something because it could be false, even though it's traditional. And I would begin to launch into my attacks, especially on the, the Trinity, the incarnation of God in Christ, the, the cross itself, and the resurrection, and saying the Bible couldn't be trusted and all these things. Basically, the four main objections every Muslim raises to Christians. But most of the Christians I was talking to didn't really know how to respond to what I was saying. But it was a few Christians who actually did know. And not only did they respond to my objections, but they had a few objections of their own. Yes. And what had convinced you that Islam was indeed true? What convinced me then that was that was true? Yes. Or was it well, so that you time, were born Muslim? When I was growing up, what, what had convinced, well, you know, most Muslims actually engage in what I call the informal academy of apologetics. Their uncle, their father, their grandfather, sometimes all of them will sit them down, especially in the West, will sit them down and tell them, here are the five reasons why you should think Islam is true. And they would say things like, you know, the Quran has never been changed. Muhammad was a prophet who was illiterate and therefore couldn't read or write. But this beautiful book comes out of him anyway, evidencing that it's God's power that creates it. He, in some forms of Islam, they believe that there are Muhammad performed miracles and all these kind of things. Conversely, you didn't just get a dose of why Islam was true. You got a good, healthy dose of why Christianity was false. And it was usually just Christianity because Christianity was the main competitor. Uh, for the hearts and minds of, of Muslims, especially if you live in the West. It was important that you stayed a Muslim, but what was more important, actually, was that you didn't become a Christian. That was far more important, because I know plenty of Muslims for whom uh, Islam is a identity, and it's nothing to do with actual practice. They don't actually practice Islam. They definitely will tell you that they believe in Islam, only because it's a practice of identity, not a practice of their actual outworking in their life. But becoming a Christian does change your identity, and that, of course, is one of the worst things possible. So a lot of Muslims will swallow the evidences in favor of, Christ, of, of Islam and against Christianity uncritically, and I was one of them. I was definitely one of them. I had a, at least an inquisitive mind, but I was pretty, pretty much just believing whatever anybody told me. It's when Christians started to challenge me a little bit that I began to see hey, maybe this is actually something that I need to, to think about a little bit more and be a little more critical of. But essentially, it was the unchanging nature of the Quran, Muhammad's status as a prophet, and those things that got me to believe that Islam was true. But interestingly enough, and we can unpack this, I didn't actually leave Islam because it was false. I left Islam because I embraced Christianity, because Christianity proved to be true. Implication, of course, is that everything else is false except for Christianity. But I didn't see like some of the you know bad stuff about Islam as the reason to leave it. I didn't really know that stuff. What I began to see was that Christianity was true and that's what got me to become a Christian. Yes, you know, what got you to question Islam and start looking at Christianity? Yeah, that's, uh, now that's the, the, the great question. A funny thing happened on the way to the mosque, as they say, don't they? Um, <laughs> I remember 
there was these two guys who came to my door at the University of Michigan, these two missionary guys from a Baptist church down the street. And they were going door to door in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is basically just Berkeley, California, but cold. You know, really liberal, not all that interested in Christianity, and in fact, quite hostile to it. So they're going door to door at these apartments, and they were knocking on the door, and most people wouldn't let them in. They wouldn't. They would say, no, no, thanks. I don't, I don't, I don't want any of that stuff, or they would ignore them or whatever. But they came to my door, and I was Mr. You know, Muslim evangelist. So I was like, oh, this is great. You guys deliver. So they came on in, and I made these two gentlemen very uncomfortable for hours at a time hours at a time where they would just keep, they would keep coming back and back and back. And so I had this little Bible I got. It's a green Bible from the Gideons. And I was trying to show them a systemic contradiction, something very important in the Bible that would be, you know, Luke says this, but John says the opposite or something to that effect. It was that that got me to really consider Christianity as true and maybe even sort of sow some deep, some doubts uh, in Islam. How that worked was this. I'm reading through the Bible to find a contradiction, and I come across Luke chapter 3, verses 7 and following. And in that, those verses, John the Baptist says to the people who are coming to him, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Of course, meaning God's judgment. Then he says something remarkable. He says, do not even begin to think to yourself, you have Abraham as your father, as if that alone would save them. For I tell you, God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. What he's saying there is tradition won't save you. Well, I was saying the same thing to my Christian friends. Tradition won't save you. But in all the years that I've been saying that, not one time did a Christian ever say, well, wait a minute, you're asking me why I'm a Christian. Why are you a Muslim? Now, I would have given them the same answer I gave you earlier. You know, the Qurans have been changed, all these things. But deep down inside, I would have known something, that I was a Muslim, not because of the strength of the evidence, but because I wanted the evidence to be true based on my tradition. I was, I was a traditionalist. And John the Baptist's words, in the irony of all ironies, is what started to move me to say, you know what? Don't believe something because it's tradition. Believe something because it's true. So it was basically at the urging of John the Baptist, whose words were carried aloft by the Holy Spirit for 20 centuries uh, in a book that I thought was corrupted, but actually wasn't, that got me thinking about, should I take the evidence in favor of Islam and just swallow it wholesale, or should I put it to the test? Should I take the evidence against Christianity and swallow it wholesale, or should I put it to the test? That's what got me on more an objective route. And I often put it this way. The words of Scripture are very powerful. You know, Pat, you're an apologist, and you talk about evidence and answers, and at RZIM, we do the same thing. But I think you would agree, and I think anybody who's read the Word and seen the power that the Bible has is that it can reach skeptics. And no matter how eloquent you or me or Ravi or any of the giants of the faith have been, none of us is as eloquent or as powerful as the Word of God. And so I would, I would argue this, is that the journey began for me because Scripture spoke to me. So may we never speak with lofty arguments in a closed Bible. That book does have power, and it got me thinking. And that's what started me on the journey of saying, is there evidence for Islam? Is there evidence for Christianity? I want to believe what's true, not what's tradition. Yes, you know, and I think that's what makes your story quite powerful. You know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I came out of a Buddhist home. When I heard the gospel, uh, I went on the same journey to see if indeed the Bible could be trusted and if indeed there was a historical person named Jesus and did things that were recorded of him, you know, in the gospels. So as you started your journey here, what did you look at to show that, hey, there is some credibility to Christianity and the evidence doesn't seem to uphold that of Islam? 
So this is the irony. Okay, so right after my encounter with John the Baptist's words, I saw something in the Quran first that got me thinking even more. The Muslims believe that the Bible, at least parts of it, you know, the, the, the New Testament or the Gospel, uh, which is the Injil in the Quran, the Zabur, which are the Psalms of David, and the Taurat, which is the five books of Moses, those are actually specifically mentioned by name in Islamic documents, specifically the Quran. They're described by Islam as having once been God's revelation. So the Bible was once God's revelation, but became corrupted over time, either on purpose or by accident, and then the Qur'an came to fix all the corruptions and bring humanity back to true monotheism. Here was the problem, though. The Qur'an doesn't actually say any of that. Islam teaches it, but the Qur'an doesn't say it. So now with my newfound mindset where I wanted to be objective, I read the Qur'an, and I see in the fifth chapter, verses 46 and 47, a statement that says that in Arabic, it's, well, yakum it literally means, O oh, people of the gospel, judge, present tense, it's a present tense command, you must judge by what God has revealed in the gospel, and those who do not judge by what God has revealed are among the evildoers, or in one translation, the rebellious ones. So the problem was the Quran is telling Christians, you must judge by your own book. Well, if the Bible was corrupted before the Quran came, then the Quran is telling Christians to judge correctly by a corrupted book. That doesn't make any sense. And then I begin to look and see other passages in the Quran that are talking about the Bible as if it was reliable and faithfully transmitted down through the centuries. Well, that presented to me a huge dilemma. You see, as a Muslim, I believed in a fundamental idea. This is fundamental to all of Islam. It's very important that people understand this. We've heard Muslims say the words, Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar meaning God is greater. So for a Muslim, God is the greatest possible being. It's not a terrorist chant, it's, and not terrorists use it, of course. But what it really is, is a prayer and a praise that almost every Muslim would say if they got good news or bad news. So God's greatness, Allahu Akbar, his greatest po- his, his, him being the greatest possible being, is the foremost, uh, of foremost importance to a Muslim. But here's the problem. I was facing. The Quran says the Bible was the Word of God. Now, if Islam is true, and it says that the Bible was corrupted, then there's only two possibilities. Either God couldn't prevent the corruption of his scriptures, or he wouldn't prevent the corruption of his scriptures. But if God couldn't prevent his scriptures from becoming corrupted, then he's not all-powerful. If he's not all-powerful, then he's not great. And every Muslim believes he's great. But option B is no better, because if God could have prevented his scripture, meaning the Bible, from becoming corrupted, but he chose not to, and the Bible and the scriptures are the only way we know who he is and what he wants from us, then he is untrustworthy, because he says he'll keep his scriptures, but then doesn't. And if he's not trustworthy, then he's not great. So if he couldn't prevent the Bible from becoming corrupted, or he wouldn't, he would either be not all-powerful, or he'd be untrustworthy, and therefore not great. But every Muslim believes that God is great. And if God is truly great, then not only must he actually be able to preserve his word, but he would want to preserve his word, and then the history shows he did. And as I looked into the history of the transmission of the Old, of the old and New Testaments, I began to see that, in fact, that word was preserved. You know, I started off with books like Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter, and then began to look at the footnotes he cites, and then looked at Bruce Metzger's work, and looked at F.F. Bruce and all these guys about the uh, transmission of the scriptures. Then I would go from popular level stuff back down to scholarly level stuff and begin to see that the scriptures really have been 
preserved for us down through the centuries. And in that preserved word, Jesus claims to be the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world and rises from the dead to prove he was right. Yes, you know, that's fantastic. You detailed out your journey there. And, you know, you make several good points. Yeah, in the Quran, several places, Muhammad does say, you know, if you want to check or if you're in doubt of my words, look to the people of the book or look at, you know. Uh, the Gospels. And so you make that point there very clearly. Yeah. Muhammad in his time thought that the Bible was reliable and the Bible that Muhammad had there in the seventh century, uh, we have older manuscripts and canons that even predate Muhammad. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, by, by, by hundreds of years. Yeah. So the idea that the Bible was corrupted before the Quran came, that's put to rest. And any idea that the Bible was corrupted after the, the Quran came, that's put to rest for sure. So we have this reliable scripture. Now the, quest, the question for me became, what does it teach? Because I was still trying to wrestle with some things. You know, there's still a difficulty there because no matter how much truth actually smacks you in the face, there is a human penchant. There is a human sort of desire to pursue your preferences rather than the actual truth because there's consequences. I knew there'd be consequences for me, not the least of which was losing an identity that I had built up for myself as a good Muslim. So with the Quran's impetus and that the evidence is impetus, I had to start reading this Bible. Then I began to come up with some uncomfortable realities too. What Al Gore would call an inconvenient truth is that the Bible and the Quran do not match up. You know, if they were both God's word, they would be consistent, but they're not. The Quran denies that Jesus is God. It denies the Trinity. It denies the crucifixion. Well, those are essentials for the Christian faith. So one of them has to be, both could be wrong, but they can't both be right. And so that began on my search to see, does what the Christian faith actually teach make some sense? And the problem was for me is it started making a little too much sense. And I was at a crossroads because I didn't want it to be true because of, you know, oftentimes there's consequences to come to. And I, I'll put it, Pat, I put it this way. Christians find it sometimes frustrating when they share the evidence for the Christian faith and they, they share compelling arguments with their friends and their friends won't sort of, you know, yield to the evidence and the strength of the argument. They're otherwise intelligent people, but they're not getting it. Well, they are getting it. But the reality is this. The answers aren't hard to find, but they are hard to accept because there's a change that's required, and that can often come with it very negative consequences. But it was when I began to see that the gospel message about the triune God who incarnates himself in the person of Christ and then dies, but then raises from the dead, he fulfilled all the things that I wish was true about God in Islam. What I wish was true about God in Islam, that he's the greatest possible being, was actually true about God in the Bible. Yes. Tell us about some of those attributes that you are looking for in the God of Islam that you found in Jesus Christ. Sure, absolutely. And and the chief one being his unparalleled greatness. As I said before, you know, God is the greatest possible being. Muslims believe that and Christians believe that. Now, I once thought, for example, with the Trinity, when I was a Muslim, I thought the Trinity was one of the silliest ideas uh, I've ever concocted. Christians want to say God is great, but how could God be great if God the Father is God, but he needs help from God the Holy Spirit and God the Son? It seems like a God like that wouldn't be really great because he needs help. Then I began to understand something about the Trinity, and this is important. I I often argue for the sake of the Trinity, which is one of my favorite things to talk about now, at three levels. I speak first on the fact that the Trinity isn't logically impossible. It's completely possible logically for God to be one in one way and three in another way. Then I go to scriptural warrant. Does the Bible actually teach Trinity? Then third, 
I go to theological necessity. Now I'm going to jump right to number three, because for me, I wanted to worship a God who was truly great, the greatest possible being. Well, the greatest possible being would not need anything to be who he is. He would need nothing and everything would need him. In fact, Islam teaches this, and so, of course, is Christianity. But if that's the case, Islam teaches, one, that God is the only uncreated being, which, of course, Christianity teaches. There's only one God, and he is uncreated. But both religions teach that God is relational. The 99 names of God in Islam are all relational. Almost all of them are relational names. And of course, the Bible teaches that God not only is loving, but he is love itself. So we see this relational quality. But then we also uh, have to have the teaching that God does not need anything. But here's the problem. If God is one in his nature and in his personhood, as Muslims teach, he's an undifferentiated absolute, then when there was no creation, there was just God, God couldn't be who he was because he couldn't be a relational being. Relational beings always require an object. So when you love, you love someone or something. Well, if God is one through and through and there's nothing else that exists, he couldn't be relational. He'd have to create something else. He'd have to need something. And of course, that is a God who's not great. But Christianity teaches us that God is one in his nature. There's one being who is God, but that God exists with three centers of consciousness, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each are distinct, yet share the same divine nature. They are one being with three consciousnesses. Now, how does that fix the problem? Well, God, as the uncreated being, doesn't need anything else to exist to be in relationship because the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And on it goes from eternity in the community of the Trinity. It's never broken, which which explains exactly why the Bible says God is love. It doesn't say God is loving. It says God is love. So in Islam, God needs something else to exist to be who he is. In the Trinity, God doesn't need anything else to be who he is. He defines relationship. He doesn't need relationship. And that is the evidence of a God who is the greatest possible being. But then I look at the cross as well. I already talked about the Bible and its preservation, and the greatest possible being would be able to and would want to preserve his word, and he did. But look at the cross, too. And I see the tremendous beauty of this. First, historically verifiable. We already know that the, the crucifixion and death of Jesus is as sure a fact as any could ever be historically, to quote John Dominic Cross and a skeptic. We know this, and we know that there's strong evidence for his resurrection. But there's also a theological beauty to it. So we have evidence and we have history, but we have theology as well. If God is the greatest possible being, as Muslims believe and as Christians believe, then he would naturally, logically, want to express the greatest possible ethic, which is love, in the greatest possible way. And the greatest possible way to express love is through self-sacrifice. We can do it. If we can do that, ought not the creator of all the universe be able to love at least as well as we do? But God is not as great as we are. God is greater than we are. So he would sacrifice in a way that is even greater than the way we sacrifice. You know, I sacrifice for those who love me back. I might sacrifice for a stranger, but I don't sacrifice for those who hate me. It's just not the kind of thing that is in my nature to do uh, as a human being, absent some kind of redemption from God. When Osama bin Laden was killed years ago, very few people, if anybody, probably no one thought, boy, I wish I could take his place. We don't do that. But a greatest possible being would want to do that, would want to redeem everyone. And I remember where I was when I read the words, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. For God demonstrates his love for us, his unsurpassed, unmatchable 
love, and that while we were sinners, those who hated God, Christ died for us. So God in Christianity is the greatest possible being expressing the greatest possible ethic, which is love, in the greatest possible way, which is self-sacrifice, and he does it in the greatest possible method, which is for those who hate him. He transforms sinners into saints and crosses into thrones, and that's what I wanted out of a God. If there was a God, then he would have to be the God of the cross and the empty tomb, because who else matches that God? Now, that is a great and reasonable progression of thought and understanding of the Trinity and of the greatness of God and the necessity for the Trinity. It's a great explanation there. In Islam, the Trinity, you know, is blasphemy. The thought of God becoming a man is blasphemy. And how do Muslims respond when you share what you just shared with us? It makes a lot of sense to us. of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you would like Pat to speak at your church or Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with your friends. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Zucran.